Hello, and welcome to the Global Luxury Real Estate Mastermind with me, your host, Michael Valdez. Today, I have a great guest on, somebody who has found a niche in the market, really created an amazing company, and I'm really, really, really anxious to speak with Jim Bruni, who is the CEO of Board Packager. Jim, welcome to the show. Michael, nice, nice to be here, and thank you for having me. Absolutely. So I, just before we came on, you were telling me that you're in your place in New Orleans. Correct. Yeah. Um, been had something here uh, since the early uh, 2010s and have just really enjoyed. There's no other city like New Orleans in my mind, uh, just the, the blend of, of all of these varying cultures and traditions and how proud the people here are of them. Uh, it's just a uh, a different way of life and it's it's a different way of looking at things and and i always value perspective oh my god absolutely which is sort of how you started your company but we'll get to that soon uh but before we do that i wanted if you could sort of share a little bit about your background because you started in a completely different industry you started in the oil and gas industry so how does that happen how do you start there and get into real estate well originally i'm from tulsa oklahoma as i mentioned uh to you before the cast began. And so my parents both were attorneys, are attorneys, and my father was an oil and gas litigator. Ah. So being in, from Tulsa, Oklahoma, Oklahoma in general, uh, and at one point in time, Tulsa was deemed, <clears throat> quote unquote, the oil capital of the world, because you had a lot of East Coast uh, people like the, the Gettys, the Skellies, the Phillips, uh, they all made their way west and, and they, they stopped in Oklahoma in pursuit of oil. And uh, there were fields just outside of Tulsa. Uh, they named them Glenpool. And so, uh, you know, Tulsa was, was always very oil and gas uh, rich because so uh, and, and intensive and so many people made their fortunes there. And so it was it, it, the, the economy was heavily rooted in it. Um, when I came home from college, I really didn't know what I was going to do with my life. And uh, there were there were a few um, Fortune 500 based oil and gas companies uh, in Tulsa. And so I applied to a company called the Williams Companies, which um, I got on as a trading assistant. Um, natural gas trading had just been or oil and natural gas trading in general had just been uh, deregulated because of FERC 486. And so I had the opportunity to come in as a trading assistant. And, uh, you know, just started, started from there, um, worked my way uh, through structuring uh, financial transactions for Williams, eventually moved to Houston, uh, was, was not uh, a part of Enron, but uh, when Enron did uh, file bankruptcy, of course, it, it sent shockwaves throughout the entire industry. And uh, so with, with my particular company where I was working at the time, I was retained to to help uh, you know facilitate the sale of of that business, and then afterwards um, I took a year off and uh, was still trying to figure out what I wanted to do with that. <laughs> uh, uh, but ended up going to grad school, um, got my MBA, and then uh, got a job uh, in New York City, and it was tangential to energy uh, risk uh, management and energy trading in the sense that. Um, the, the, my second real career was uh, running a, a subsidiary, a North American subsidiary of a Tokyo-based weather risk management consulting company. And 
whether uh, you know energy prices are all really uh, they're deterrent on supply and demand, but of course weather is a huge factor. So that was that was the element that connected all of it. Um, and I worked for I ran uh, North America for uh, around five years, um, and then um, I, they wanted me to move to Tokyo, and I, I said no, I needed to stay in New York. And I'd always throughout that entire time, I'd always bought and sold real estate. Uh, real estate had always been a passion of mine. When growing up in Tulsa, um, my parents actually had quite a few rental properties. Um, and I would go on weekends with, with my parents to, to help fix them up or what have you. Uh, and I actually bought uh, my first house when I was 21. Wow. Um, and so, you know, when I, when I was sitting there saying, well, I'm not going to Tokyo, uh, and no one's really hiring. It was 20, 2010. Uh, no one's really hiring ex-CEOs of North American su- subsidiaries of Tokyo-based weather risk management companies. And so uh, I just decided to get my, uh, my real estate license. And uh, I started telling people that's what I was doing. Um, and it was interesting because you know we were just coming off the financial crisis. Yep. Uh, and so the the market in Manhattan uh, and, and Brooklyn, the five boroughs, was was not very good. Uh, so it was not necessarily a, a great time to, to dive into the wonderful wide world of real estate. Um, but it, it just so happened that I, you know, I, I ended up, it was a perfect time because uh, I caught the wave. We, we saw this increase in, in demand and, and uh, traction uh, towards the end of 2011, uh, beginning of 2012. And uh, that, that helped uh, in terms of you know, being able to, to really solidify a, a spot in New York City real estate uh, to, to become, thankfully, and, and it was surprising, uh, Rookie of the Year at Douglas Allman. And so that was, yeah, um, yeah. Quite, so, quite you know, I think it's really interesting because I think that from your analytical and financial mind coming into a market like that, you know, back then I was actually, I came from a banking uh, world yes. with Deutsche Bank right? for 10 years, right? Yeah. And so um, when that happened, I actually, 2009 and 2010 were the best years of my selling career. and. Sure. That was because we were, the market shifted, right? And it was all about perspective, which is really where you've really succeeded in this industry is perspective. And so I was working with vulture funds coming into, I was living in Miami at the time. And in that Miami market, it was the market. blood everywhere it was blood right (laughs) and it was like awfully named vulture funds but it was what it was right Right. so then you so you came in you became rookie of the year in 2012 at douglas element so tell me a little bit about now now you're in your third career right with sort of oil and gas the weather executive now we're now in real estate and so you've always had this entrepreneurial spirit about you but now that your focus is Okay, now I'm selling real estate. We're going to let everyone know, and because you had to do that in order to get rookie of the year. Tell me a little bit about discipline. What did you do? How did that happen for you to get there? Because I know a lot of my colleagues that work with with DE, and it's a that bar is high. So tell me what you were doing there. Well, so it, it was really a bit of soul searching because uh, at that particular point in time, I was in my mid thirties. 
And I, I had wondered whether I'd peaked, to be honest. Um, and so I, I had to really give some thought to the approach that I was going to take. And the approach that I was going to take was I, I could see in the market a, a need for some, someone or some entity that could put some analyses behind these assets, right? Um, now, granted, it is a business transaction, but it's also pretty personal too. Yeah. So if you can combine those two elements, um, if you can speak to the rational, if you can speak to the heart, then that is a recipe for success. And But it took some time to develop it. I, I knew that that was my, I, I thought it was my initial philosophy. But I also had to, I had to know what I was doing. Uh, so my first few clients, uh, it was it was mainly all buy side uh, that that uh, rookie year, and um, you know, thankfully, uh, people were were starting to come into the market. Some wanted to make forty percent off offers. Yeah, uh, I remember some of those calls, <laughs> and uh, agents not very happy with me. But um, at the same time, you know, what, what I had to do was I, I really had to understand the city. And even though I had, I had been uh, living in the city for, at that particular time, six, six seven years, um, you know, every, every single aspect of Manhattan and Brooklyn and Queens, there, there are all these micro markets, if you will. And so... Um, I began working with with people who had reached out after I had said that this is what I was doing with my life, and uh, I was, uh, you know, I, I was fortunate to do a couple of of uh, deals, uh, three deals actually, but in that year. But then there was one that I had been working on for for almost a year, a buy side client, and it was a West Village townhouse. And so every time I went out with this particular client, um, I would spend I would spend time on each property beforehand, uh, going to Property Shark, like reading public records, what have you, right? Trying to get an understanding, an innate understanding of that particular asset. Then, of course, I, you know, if we're scheduling uh, times to go view. Um, I would put them together. I spend like a day scheduling and then I would go and I would walk the entire route and I would make observations as to what was there. Oh, you know, the Equinox is only two blocks that way, or there's a bodega on the corner or here's your dry cleaners or what have you. Right. Um, and it, it really, it was, it was that I, I had a spreadsheet that I would, I would actually print out and I'd carry it with me and it, it had all these columns and it would, it would have specifics like number of beds, baths, square footage, lot size, build size, taxes, all of these things, price per square foot. Um, and so I, I would, I'd actually just memorized it. And so if I got asked a question, it'd be like, yeah, no, it's, it's $1,500 a square foot or whatever. You were the rain um, man of real estate basically. No, well, I don't know. I wouldn't say that. I would not say that at all. Um, I would say that I, I worked pretty hard to no, try to, awesome. to remember all of those things. There's so many different variables. Uh, and so it ended up, I, I mentioned I'd been working with this uh, client for actually at that particular point in time. Yeah, it was maybe a little over a year. Uh, and it was, 
it was the, I, I remember there was a, there was a broker I was working with. Um, my client was interested in this townhouse and uh, this particular broker couldn't show it. And I said, well, um, this, uh, my client wants it. So uh, I, I'm pretty sure he, he uh, will move very quickly. And so you can trust me with the keys and I can open the townhouse or maybe we, we move on and not buy it. And so uh, this broker reluctantly gave me the keys because I understand, you know, she and it was, I was new to the business and uh, yeah. it's a trust thing and I get that. Um, and so uh, my client ended up buying it. We closed December 28th of that year. And so wow. that's what made me rookie of the year, that yeah. last minute, December 28th closing. There is a lot that is takeaways from what you just said. And it's really about preparation because we start talking about in this industry that we are all working in, in this day and age where information is just so readily available, right. you have to have a lot more than what anyone can find on Zillow or Realtor or whomever they're using for their initial search. So they don't need us for that. They need someone that gives them everything you did. And so what we talk about so often on this podcast is really that sense of being that expert. And you truly were. You gave the value of what somebody wanted. You were not a transactional broker. You were an advisor at that point. Oh, I think if you have the approach that you're a transactional broker, you don't succeed ultimately in my mind. Say that again. <laughs> Say that again. Say that again. Wait. You, you have to always have the approach that you're an advisor there and you are there every single step of the way, no matter how long it takes. And quite frankly, I've worked with one buy side client for five years before this client finally found the apartment that worked. Um, and you know, the minute that you start saying to yourself that I've spent too much time on this and nothing's going to happen, then you are putting your interests before your clients and Million. they will know. Exactly. Exactly. Oh my God. This is so golden nuggets that are so true in our industry, <laughs> so needed to be repeated so often because, you know, listeners are at different stages in their career with this podcast, right? And it's, uh, and it's people that are in, in, learning from those that have done it and done it successfully. But I want to get to I want to get to the company you formed because for those that don't know the New York market, there is a co-op um, world here. And since this is a global podcast, I would love it if you can talk a little bit about what co-ops are and then the niche that you found in the marketplace. So talk about the co-op market. What was the big challenge and the solution you so wonderfully actually created? Well, thank you for the kind words, Michael. And I will correct you, it's co-op and condo. Well, that's true, uh, right. Yeah, so, yeah, right. And you know, what was, how this all got started was essentially one deal that I had that I, it was buy side. And I was trying to get information on a particular building and I, I couldn't uh, Google who the management company was. I actually had to go to the building itself uh, and ask the doorman who the managing agent was. Uh, and then I had to call and I got routed to two or three different people. 
And really what I was looking for was a, a financial statement of the building um, to understand the, the overall health, whether uh, maintenance or common charges had been increased over time and by how much, <clears throat> how much was in reserves. Was there litigation in the building? Things like when you're, when you're a buyer in a high-rise multifamily, you're not just buying the apartment, you're buying into the entire building and it's good and it's bad. Right? Yes. So it's like marrying um, into the family, right? For sure it is. Yes. Uh, and so this particular client, I, I couldn't get the financial statement in time. This uh, apartment was going to a highest and best. So, you know, we, we had to, we were in that situation. We, we won the, the, the bidding. I did finally get the financial statement after sending a check for $50 and waiting, you know, I think it was three days and I got it um, via email. But um, I thought, you know, there, there is a issue here in yeah. terms of just access to information that is needed to make an informed decision on an asset purchase that is a very large one. This particular apartment, uh, this was $4.1 million. Um, and so you don't, you don't want to, whether it's $100,000 or $4.1 million or $10 million or $20 million, you don't take any of this lightly. So then I was, of course, it's, um, this was a co-op. Uh, and co-ops, sure, I'll explain the difference between co-ops and condos. So with cooperative uh, ownership, so there is a corporation that owns the building. And when you as a buyer uh, buy into a cooperative, you receive shares in the corporation and a proprietary lease for your apartment, right? Uh, and that is, that is different, of course, from a condo where it is deeded property uh, and that you are you do have a percentage of the overall common areas as well as part of that, right? So um, with, with the cooperative and actually with, the, with what I've, it's interesting because in certain markets, um, my understanding, and I know that, that condo boards will also do an interview of a prospective buyer. Right. Um, in New York City, it's the cooperative boards that do that interview. So with that process, um, you are required to submit a board, what is called a board package, right? And in New York City, it is whether it's a condo or a cooperative, you must have this board package. And they are very similar in nature. Uh, and they are required for purchase, a lease, a sublease, um, a refinance, if you're doing an alteration to your unit in that building, you must submit a board package. Um, lease renewals are, are a little different, but yet there is some element to it. Uh, the board doesn't necessarily approve those, they can just happen. Um, but so with this board package for this apartment that I'd finally gotten the financial statement for, uh, I started to do, uh, to assemble it. and. This one happened to be, uh, in the end, after collating all of the various pages, a little over 500, uh, because we were looking pages. at- Pages. Correct. Yeah. So 500 it's pages. 500 pages for one board now, I've had I've done a board package that ended up being 1,210 pages <laughs> because this particular uh, buy side, there were, th there were three individuals that were going to be on the stock and lease. So it was a, um, it was a father, mother, they were divorced and then the daughter. Okay. 
but we're talking about the 500 pager. So yeah. I was I was getting documents via FedEx, via fax, via courier. I was getting them via email attachment. I was printing them out. I was putting them together, collating them on my desk. Um, and I thought, God, there's got to be a better way to do this. Technology exists for this, right? But it was interesting because that particular building, there were seven board members and they required an original uh, and then they, uh, seven copies for each board. So I waited until the office had emptied and I started running my seven copies of a 500 page. Uh, well, first I had to make a copy of the original so that I could, you know, black out any sort of sensitive information. And then I made seven copies of that and I had two copiers going. And after 15 minutes, the first one jammed and I, I couldn't repair it. And after about another 15 to 20 minutes, the second one jammed and it was toast. So I had to take all of this mess and I went across the street to the Staples and yeah. I spent 600 bucks making <laughs> copies. Uh, and because this wasn't just a plain black and white, I mean, there were, sure. there were beautiful color charts and things like that. Uh, and you want the package to look good. So <laughs> it was that next day I, I packed up uh, a couple boxes and I had the checks for the fees and I, I went to the management company and I handed it to the receptionist and uh, there was no indication as to where, who was ultimately going to receive it, when it was going to be reviewed, when it was going to the board. Um, and so I, the whole, the idea it was interesting because I had um, reconnected with uh, a friend from high school and invested in his med tech startup. And I was like, and he's with the company today, he's our COO. And um, I was like, we, we, I mean, we've got to do something about this. Like yeah. it has to be a better way. And you mentioned niche, right? Um, at a particular point in time, it really was trying to digitize this process to make it more efficient, uh, to make it secure. And, um, but I really didn't realize the, the impact that it ultimately would have and the, the amount of stakeholders it would impact. Because if you think about how many different people are involved in one transaction, yeah. you've got, and in New York, it's a little different because attorneys are involved here, whereas other states, they're not. But you've got a buy side attorney, a sell side attorney, you've got buyer, multiple buyers, you've got um, the broker, buy side, sell side, you've got the management company, you've got the board of directors, uh, in a lease, there could be a guarantor, right? And all of those individuals are connected to this, this process and this application in varying ways at various right. times. Yeah. Uh, and so what we ultimately realized was that we were actually building an enterprise uh, software solution that was really ultimately transaction management. So we, um, it, was, it was a niche, um, we, we are condo cooperative. Uh, we are doing some rental buildings as well because our, our management companies want to have one system to process all applications. And so uh, those are coming into the system as well. 
and uh, really we're we're now a little over three thousand buildings, two hundred fifty thousand units in the five boroughs. We have a couple, a few buildings in New Jersey, and we're also going to South Florida. Uh, and we we launched the software in January of twenty eighteen. So wow. uh, it's amazing. been yes, uh, you know, and if we think about the the COVID world, um, yes. you know really the, the process of, of applications and it, let's talk about New York City had been a, a decades old process, right? Um, and, you know, that involved and a lot. quite of flawed. Uh, yeah, you can yeah. make that argument. Uh, I, you know, we saw, saw uh, something that I thought needed to be solved. Um, and thankfully, a lot of people agreed. But we, we had the onset of COVID, the executive order on March 22nd of last year, suspended all real estate showings, uh, suspended really non-essentials from going into the office. And that affected management companies. Uh, they needed a way, if, had they not been remote, they needed to get remote very quickly. Um, and that impacted receiving you know, physical paper copies of something or physical checks for payments. and. Uh, it, it became a, a bottleneck if they couldn't be in the office to, to do that, right? Um, even to disseminate uh, board of directors meeting minutes as part of the sure. diligence process in, in the buy, buy side transaction. So, um, and we, we formed a tool to be able to securely do that uh, as well. But it, it, you know, it really was a, it was a call to, to action in the sense that, um, you know, we, we needed to have that that ability in New York City uh, for for the, the process to continue uninterrupted um, in, a, in a digital way. I think that's a really amazing what you, A, that you found this incredible opportunity. And it was because of the challenges that you faced, right? And trying to sort of get a deal done. And right. it's something that people had been going through the same struggles, to your point, for decades. And it was then it just needed it just needed you to get the solution. So congratulations <laughs> on that. Well, it you know it takes a team. It does. Uh, it I've does. done it without Ming, our, our COO, and and the people that we have uh, at at Board Packager. I love um, the ability. That's that's wonderful. Right. So uh, tell me a little bit about okay somebody coming into the industry today. Tell me three things that you would say to somebody coming in. Three pieces of advice. So are we talking? Are we talking uh, brokerage? Or are we talking prop tech? Uh, we're talking brokerage. Okay. Uh, I would say that it is. I would say own it. Own it. Uh, know your capability. Know exactly what your focus is going to be, uh, and and just hit it on a daily basis. Daily. I'm talking seven days a week. Right, because that's that's what it takes. Um, know that it's going to take a year, if not longer, uh, to really establish a, a business. And um, you know, people people will forget about you if you're not out in it. So you know, so it's one of those things. But at the same time, I think people will will identify when somebody is overexposed as well. So, that's you, actually really fair. There's a, there's, a, there's a good balance there, isn't there? There has to be a balance yeah. that you strike. Um, yeah. So be, be careful in your approach, in your words, 
there will be many instances. I, I actually, this is when I first got started, um, of course, I was tracking everything in spreadsheets and I, I was tracking the every deal that I had been a part of, whether it was closed or not. And I started to see that the non-closed deals were outweighing the closed deals. And I was getting pretty upset. And a very good friend of mine, um, Max, he he looked at me and he said, you're gonna, you're gonna run yourself into the ground if that's how you look at it. Yeah. And he was absolutely right. And so then, you know, it is to the point, and you know, I have a team, a brokerage team of, of you know, really smart uh, people, accomplished people who are, who are, are um, you know, helping. And, you know, it, when, I, when I go to, when I see, I have a, a rookie that's come on and it is, I, I can see how it's like, oh, I should have gotten that. I should have gotten that. Like what happened? Like, no, I, you know, we need to correct this kind of thing. And it, it really is a, nope, move on move on. You, if you, if you spend your time dwelling on what was lost, then you will be lost yourself. That's right. Absolutely. I love that one. Yeah. That's great. What's the greatest lesson you've learned in your career thus far? Um, you know, I think that, uh, so I was thinking about this question and the other day I was in, I was in a store um, and I saw these cocktail napkins and it was, they were just plain white cocktail napkins and in black lettering uh, were the words, um, made the bridges you burn light the way. Nice. And I started laughing and I was like, this is the complete antithesis of my philosophy. <laughs> but I love it because I've watched so many people do it, right? They have this mindset that oh, whatever, you know, I'm, I'm right. I'm a hundred percent. Like, you know, my, my vision is what it is and screw everybody else. Kind yeah. of thing. Um, and I don't think you accomplish really much of anything ultimately uh, by that attitude. Uh, I think that there, we are all human beings. We are all in this together in a varying way, shape or form. And we all have to learn how to how to uh, tolerate, to to live with one another, to thrive, to collaborate. And yes, there are people that are going to try to do certain things to you at certain times. Um, and you know, maybe you you give as good as you get. But ultimately, I think um, you know it is it is there there is a way to when when there are willing parties, there is a way to get something done. Yeah, always. You know, it's it's funny because when I read that quote or a similar quote to that, I internalized it. So for me, it was the bridges of say your past and things that were your own sort of uh, limiting sort of recordings in your mind, and mm -hmm. it's burning those bridges so that the future is bright for yourself. That's a great perspective, and you know, this is why we're talking. <laughs> you know, I, I just have, I, I, you know, I, I've seen that too. Yeah. I, and I, I, I can understand that too. Yeah. Um, uh, but Where there's yeah. no sense of a safety net or a plan B. Well, mm -hmm. you need to do is be able to succeed. Right. 
you know? Yeah. And so I love that though, but I love that quote. I yeah. love it. Um, I've, I've thought about giving them to, as gifts to certain people, but ultimately <laughs> I just kept them for myself. <laughs> <laughs> With a little sort of caveat as to what the meeting should be. Oh, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> you know, case okay, sera sera. Everyone I love it. Everyone interpretation. So. All right. So I'm going to sort of stay on this route for a second. So what piece of advice, a singular piece of advice, would you give your 10-year-old self with the knowledge that you have now? Uh, it would be to try everything and evaluate everything and know whether it strikes something within you that's innate. You know I think from a very early age as to what resonates with you, what, what you like, what you don't like, what you think you can be good at with hard work or practice, what you think you are not good at or won't be good at despite how much effort you put into it. Right. I think that we all have the beautiful part about humanity is we, we have all of these different traits and qualities that can be complementary to one another. Not every one is the end all and be all for everything. It takes us all. And so I might be good at one thing and somebody else good at another. And the, the thing about knowing this about yourself and realizing that about others is you can say, I know you're really good at this. Please, I need your help. Can you help me here? And then in turn, they can say, I know you're really good at that. Please, can we help each other? Um, and so I, I think that, you know, when, when I was, when I was growing up, um, you know, there was, there was a certain path. Yeah. Uh, both my parents were, uh, educated college, graduate school. Um, and you know, that was, that was going to be my path, whether, and I did get accepted into law school, uh, and at the very, very last minute I said, no. Yeah. Um, and, but, but I, one of my sisters is an attorney, brother-in-law, like I, you know, I kind of come from that. And I I think that if I were looking back on on my 10 year old self, I would say, try everything and see what fits Um, because you will probably know even then. And maybe it's not something at that particular time that uh, is, is in vogue or, socially acceptable for a young 10 year old, uh, but it could be. I love and I think what, what has been proven over time is that those that, that have that conviction uh, are, are very successful in a myriad of different ways, no matter what the conviction is. They just, they just know that they can be good at this. They are good at this and they have this to give. Jimmy, you know, it's sort of like, this is the first time we're meeting and it's sort of, uh, and it really is such a pleasure because I'm drawing so much from what you are talking about. And so you have a very, very sort of spiritual base about you and in caring about others, which is really beautiful to witness. Uh, Where did that come from? It it, it exudes from you. I, you know, I don't know. Um, I think that you know, there, there's so many different things that shape our, our life and our experience. Sure. And um, I think that I am the oldest and, um, you know, my, my parents did divorce early on and, and 
being the oldest and the only boy um, and us being very close in age. Um, you know, we, we had each other and we had to, we had to get through a traumatic event together. So that probably is one of the factors that has shaped my approach. I love that. I love that. So, um, tell me about a book that you've read more than once and why. So it's not a business book. (laughs) I like that. Although they are, I, I mean, I'm fascinated by them and I, I'm currently about to start the book on Adam Newman, I, I think, than WeWork. So that, that will be yeah. an interesting one. Um, but there is this book that, that was actually made into a book. It, it's uh, from a series of storytelling events called The Moth. Mm. And I don't know if you've heard of The Moth, but I have not. Uh, check it out. It, it they they were in person events uh, where uh, individual would get up and tell a short story about his or her life or something that is experiential uh, for it and but the there is an author who put together the, a collection of these these stories and this particular moth book is called all these wonders true stories about the unknown and I, uh, life is full of unknowns right. Um, and so, you know, I immediately opened the book and I started reading and really it's, it's a testing. These stories are attesting to the, the varieties and the, and the travails of our collective existence and, um, crises and, and how we deal with them. And, and it's really, it's honest without fear. Um, and when I started reading this one particular story in general, um, and, but I read this book often because I, I want to remind myself of this, right? When you know, you're starting a company, the, the philosophy is uh, you're, you're kind of, you're, you're Teddy Roosevelt's man in the arena. Um, all kinds of people are throwing things at you. Yeah. You think, uh, am I going to be able to pull this off? Uh, there are times when, when you think that, that you might be, staring into an abyss and you don't know necessarily what the next move is, but then you keep plugging away and it, and it happens. Right. Um, And so, you know, the, 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 the theory for me is that reading these stories of, of these collective experiences reminds me that, you know, I'm not in this alone. I'm not necessarily the man in the arena, although society expects a man in the arena. right? Right. Uh, so there's this one story about this, um, this, uh, well, what was, he was a former child soldier in Sierra Leone mm-hmm. and, uh, it was the civil war there. Um, this, this author is, a, a human rights activist. Uh, his name's Ishmael Bea. Uh, I hope I'm pronouncing that correctly, but, um, he had been adopted because his family had been killed in this, uh, civil war and he came to New York. And um, he, uh, his adopted mother had enrolled him in school in the city. And uh, eventually he was invited by some friends to go upstate um, to the country. And they decided that they wanted to play paintball. Hmm. And he had never played paintball before. And so he was, he was learning the rules of the game and studying. And 
he references this in the story that, you know, it came back to his being a child soldier and assessing the terrain and assessing the personalities and, and understanding, you know, how many steps it was to this point or what have you. And so they, they started the game and everybody immediately dispersed and, and his whole ideology was, well, let's let them start moving around or whatever and let them get tired and worked up. And then, um, you know, I, I can sense, I can, I can hear, I, I know where everyone is, you know, for the most part, and I can just come up and immediately pop them and, and they're done. Right. So, I mean, he beat everybody and people were like, who the hell are you? Where did, you know, how did you know how to do this? Right. Because he never spoke of his background. Yeah. Yeah. No one had any idea. Wow. Um, and so it was, it was interesting because, you know, his perspective was, uh, that these people had a naive innocence. They had no idea. They could pretend a war, but, you know, he had experienced real war. Lived in it. Wow. Lived in it. Right. And so, you know, I, I think back on that story and I, I think, you know, what, what, a, what a perfect kind of mantra in the sense of, you know, he, he innately knew things that, about himself um, he was able to assess an environment. He was able to not necessarily put himself first, um, but he was able to adeptly navigate a situation. Um, and, you know, he was, he was never asked to pay, play paintball again. In <laughs> <laughs> fact, he put himself last he put because himself. he let everyone else go and do everything. And he just observed that's right. That's um, Yep. Uh, and, you know, he said that they, he, he stepped out and they started playing, you know, and then they would <laughs> talk about, you know, who won that particular game, but it was, yeah. Uh, yeah. That's, that's really powerful, actually. Yeah. So, so I, 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 I highly recommend that collection. I'm, I'm, I already written it down. <laughs> I have one final question for you, Jim. So sure. staying on a literary theme, in your book of life, What's this chapter called? I think it's called The Beginning. Ooh, I, like uh, I think that I have spent uh, the years that I've had uh, accumulating a, a, a set of tools. And I started to begin to really know every single tool that's in my toolbox uh, to truly understand how it can effectively and efficiently be used to fix certain things. And so that's why I say it's really just the beginning because I have this, this, this tool set now that I can begin to start solving some things. So. Love that. Well, I have to tell you something, Jim, it's, um, you know, I've done this about a year and a half now. So we've done about uh, 70 or 80 interviews at this point. And wow, yeah, it's, it's great. Congratulations. Yeah, on that thank too. you. But you know me. what? I've never interviewed someone who, who I didn't know personally. And actually, oh, really? we, share, we share a friend in common. We and do. so it was, uh, it was wonderful. But I actually want to thank you so much because throughout this whole thing, I thought as though I was talking to a friend. And after today, I'm hoping that that is the case because you're a wonderful person. I love your spirit. And I thank you so much for being on this show. Michael, it was a true pleasure meeting with you and talking with you. And uh, I know that to be true. 
that we will be friends. And, and congratulations on on really your great success. Thank you. Um, the proliferation of of this podcast. I think I think it's wonderful. Thank and you for your career as well. <laughs> thank you. You're very kind. And thank you for all of you for listening. This has been the Global Luxury Real Estate Mastermind with me, your host, Michael Valdez. Thank you. Thank you.